Okay, well, so if you're tracking with this, this letter, I know not all of you have been here this whole time, so let me just give you a little synopsis of where it's been. Okay, Paul has uh, a long history with the Corinthians. He spent about 18 months, a year and a half, with them in person, at least that amount of time, probably more. Um, he has written numerous letters to them. We have two of those in our Bibles. The others, uh, at least three, possibly four letters that we know of that he wrote to them. We don't have the other two because Christ did not uh, inspire those as scripture. So we're not, we're not uh, concerning ourselves with them. But he had a very long history, relational history with the Corinthians. He loved them even when they didn't love him very well. And, uh, and so in this letter, this is very different from most of his other letters because it's extremely personal. He's trying to get them back into a right relationship with, with him. There'd been a fracture there uh, because he had to say some really hard things to them in a prior letter. He, he mentions that in the early part of 2 Corinthians. He wrote them a letter. It was very harsh. He feels bad about that, but he doesn't feel bad for the outcome because they've repented. And he's, so now he's writing to try to restore a relationship. So he's confronted them in this letter. He's encouraged them in this letter. And now we're at a point in the letter where we're about over halfway through. He's going to start to call them to action. He's actually got something for them to do. And specifically, he's going to call them to live lives of generosity. And more than that, not just generically be a generous church, but to have a specific thing for them to give towards. Um, he, he's trying to raise money from all the churches in the world that he knows of, uh, that he has a connection with. He's trying to raise money for the church in Jerusalem. So the church in Jerusalem was under a, a lot of pressure, was dealing with massive financial problems because the people in that church were being persecuted and many of them had lost their jobs and were, were beginning to starve. And so Paul's going, okay, we got to help these, these brothers and sisters. And so he's going around to all his churches and he's saying, hey, would you give? And so that's the context of the letter. It's or, or this chapter, and actually this chapter and the next chapter, um, he's going to be dealing with money, what we do with money, how we handle it, how we give it. Uh, and, you know, that's, um, th that's just the fact. And this is actually an interesting section because it's the longest concise teaching in the scriptures on the subject of money that we have. It is the, he spends the most amount of time talking about it of anywhere in the Bible uh, in these two chapters. It's, it's actually a very lengthy discussion. And, and so here's, but here's the overall premise. And this is what we're going to see. Um, Jesus changes everything about our lives, right? That's, that's what we believe, right? If we trust in Christ and we give our sins to him for forgiveness, he, he works in us. He sanctifies us, matures us, grows us. He, and he's doing that in every corner, every little nook and cranny of our lives, including what we do with our money. So um, human beings are naturally not eager to give, right? We're not eager to give by nature. We're eager to hoard. We want to have, right? We're, like, we're more like squirrels than we want to admit in that regard, right? We're packing away acorns for winter. Uh, we, that, that's human nature. But when Jesus takes a, a work in us and does something in us, he changes that impulse, 
He gives us something new to care about, and that is to care for the needs of others. And so he gives us, he empowers us to give. So that's what we're going to talk about. But I want to address the elephant in the room first, because you're in a church, and I'm a pastor, and, and I know that churches are not always the best on this, okay? We, I know that churches have done harm to people on this issue of money, um, there are churches, in fact, in fact, I know people in this church who have horror stories of how previous churches uh, have treated them on this issue. I, I pray we never, ever step over into that, uh, that realm. I, I, but I know that churches have used money as a manipulation tool or a way to control people. And listen, not every church. In fact, I would say most churches don't. But the ones that do, do it really badly and it really leaves a bad taste in people's mouth. So here, I just want to state that from the outset, that that is not the heart of Jesus. Um, and it's not our heart either. We, we do not want to, for you to walk away from here going, oh, the church just wants our money. I don't care one bit about your money. I care about you. I care about you. And the elders care about you. And so I, I just want you to hear that. That's not what this is about. But it's in the scriptures. We're going to deal with it because we're not going to ignore what the Bible teaches uh, just because it may be uncomfortable for some of us. So what we want to see today is how money and giving and being generous actually flows out of the heart of Christ as he's working in us through the gospel. And, and so here's the key. The, this passage, this passage and next week's passage, it, which is about money, really isn't about money, not ultimately. That's the subject matter, yes, but what Paul is trying to drive home here, what the scriptures are trying to say to us here, is that this passage is not just about money, it's ultimately about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's what it is. And so we're going to see the heart of Christ in this, even as we're called as people to be generous people. So I'm excited for that. I love how this does really tie back to who Jesus is and what he's done in the gospel. So with that said, let's get into the text. I've kind of did the introduction thing. We're going to look at uh, three principles here, I think, that we can call them principles of, of generosity and where it comes from. So if we look at verse 1 through 7, this first paragraph gives us the, the first argument that Paul's going to make for the church in Corinth. Um, and and here's, here it is. I'll just state the point, and then we'll look at the, the passage. Um, he's going to make the point here, as, you'll, as we'll see, that generosity, a heart of being generous, flows from our relationship with Jesus. It, it's just a natural outflowing of the relationship that Christ has with us and we have with him. So let's look at the, the text. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord 
and then by the will of God to us. And um, so here, here's where Paul's going. He starts out by talking to the Corinthians about another group of churches, the churches in Macedonia. And he says, I want you guys to know about these churches in Macedonia. Uh, Macedonia was a region in, in the Greek world. Uh, there's a few churches that would have been within Macedonia that you're familiar with if you know the books of the Bible. Um, uh, Philippi, so where the f- book to the Philippians was written to, was in Macedonia. Thessalonica, so the Thessalonians 1 and 2. And, and then Berea, uh, which is mentioned in the book of Acts. It's not men- it doesn't have its own letter written to them, uh, but the, you've heard probably of these churches. These were all in Macedonia. And so Paul's looking at them and he's expressing to the Corinthians what's going on there. And, and here's how he describes it, right? He says that they um, have a severe test of affliction in verse two and their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So what he says is, is there's, a, there's a huge affliction happening in Macedonia. These churches are dirt poor. They have nothing. They're, they're living in extreme poverty. Not just a little poverty, right? Extreme poverty. And, and yet, Paul says, nonetheless, they are overflowing with joy and they are eager to give to the church in Jerusalem. They want to give out of their poverty. And that's, that's, that only happens as people are changed by the gospel, Right? Because the natural impulse of a human heart is, and I think it's not all wrong, I'm not saying we shouldn't have this mindset at times, is to go, well, I don't have much, so I should probably hold on to what I do have so there's a, you know, better days ahead or so we're protected in case something really bad happens. Right? That's a natural impulse. That's okay. I don't think there's anything scripturally wrong with having a savings account or being secure in that regard. Of course not. However, there's also a deeper impulse that happens as Jesus changes us. And that is to say, you know what, we can, we can be generous even if we don't have all we need. And so Paul says here, look at verse 3. He says, for they gave according to their means. Right? So, they, so they gave according to what they had, which wasn't much. So they didn't probably give a lot in terms of the dollar amount. And he says, as, as I can testify... But, he says, beyond their means of their own accord. So the, the, the Macedonian churches actually gave more than what they could realistically have given to be considered wise or to be considered um, you know, smart with their money. Um, and and they, they gave more than what they could realistically give. But notice this. Paul says, following that, he says, of their own accord. He says, they chose to do that. Paul is not trying to manipulate them into giving more than they could afford to give. In fact, he's going to go on in this passage. We'll see it later on in this chapter. He's going to say, you don't have to give if you don't have, <laughs> right? If you don't have something to give, then of course you can't give. He's, he's not trying to manipulate or, or, or force these people to give. He's not trying to use them. Uh, he's simply saying, we asked them to give of what they could, and they did, and then they gave even more of their own choice, their own, their own decision, their own accord. They chose to do this. And Paul, I don't even know, I'm not sure exactly how Paul felt about that, to be honest. 
Paul might have been a little bit uncomfortable with that, <laughs> I think, because he loves these people. Right? And, he, so, and I would feel that way too. I, I mean, I, I think you would feel that way if somebody came to you and you knew their financial situation and, and you're going, oh, I don't know, if, I don't know about this, right? But, but everybody's got to make the choices in their own heart. And these people in Macedonia just had an overflow of love for the church in Jerusalem and for Jesus. And, and so that's where he goes in verse 5. He, he, this is where we get the main point, that generosity flows out of our relationship with Jesus. Because here's what he says. He said this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord. And then by the will of God to us. So the Macedonians had this relationship with Jesus that was first and foremost. The most important relationship that they had was with Jesus. And because they loved the Lord Jesus and they gave themselves to him, then they could give themselves to the, to the apostles who were trying to help the church in Corinth. So here's where we're at, right? Being generous is not about how much money you have but it's how much Jesus means to you. And it's not about specifically how much money you can give. It's not about the dollar amount. It's about the heart behind why we give and what we give. And so we also see here, uh, as we continue on, let's read verse six and seven. It says, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Um, what we're seeing Paul say here in verses 6 and 7 is that being generous is an action on our part, but it's produced by the grace of God at work in us. It's produced by God's grace. It, that's where it comes from. And so he says, hey, Titus started this with you. He started talking to you, and we'll find out actually in this chapter that this conversation with the Corinthians about giving uh, and being generous for the church in Jerusalem, this started well over a year ago from the time that Paul's writing this letter. They'd been talking about this. And so Paul's saying, hey, I'm, we urge Titus that as he started this discussion with you about being generous, so he should complete it among you. And, and then in verse seven, he says this, as you excel in everything. Now, I think Paul is speaking here a little tongue in cheek or a little sarcastically in some sense, because the Corinthians did not excel in everything right? We know that they didn't. We know that they were actually pretty bad Christians in a lot of ways. That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. And 2 Corinthians, you know, it doesn't seem like it's gotten a whole lot better. Not in every, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. So why, why is Paul saying that as you excel in everything? Well, I think what he's doing is he's playing up their, their natural inclination to be a little braggadocious, right? The Corinthians were kind of a braggy group of people. If you study ancient Corinth at all and just learn about the culture there, it was a very kind of boasting sort of society. Um, that's why Paul deals with the issue of boasting so much in the first letter to the Corinthians. Um, in chapters uh, 1, 2, and 3, that's pretty much what he's talking about is the issue of boasting. And so the Corinthians were prone to this. And, and so I think Paul's kind of playing up on this and going, hey, you guys say you're awesome. Maybe you should actually like show that, 
<laughs> you know, you say it, maybe you should do it. So, that, so that's what he says. As you excel in everything, as you think you're awesome at everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So basically, put your money where your, your mouth is here, Corinthians. That's, that's what he's doing. So, so the first uh, paragraph here, we're just looking at the, the idea of generosity. It flows out of our relationship with Jesus. And Paul's not trying to coerce the Corinthians to anything. He's trying to use Macedonia as an example to them because the Corinthians were the exact opposite of the, of the Macedonians. Macedonians were dirt poor, under extreme persecution, massive, massive poverty, and the Corinthians were just flying high. They, were, they had all the money in the world by c- comparison. So Paul's trying to help them see like, hey, if, the, if Jesus matters this much to the people in Macedonia, he can mean this much to you too. And you can, and you can give as an overflow of that. All right, secondly, let's look at verse 8 through 15. This is kind of the next section. Uh, here's the main point we're going to unpack or, or see in this. Um, and it's this, that generosity, the impulse to give, is ultimately demonstrated to us or on display for us by Jesus. That Jesus is the ultimate giver. And I think this this is what we're going to revisit as we kind of get to the end of this sermon because I think this is the entire crux of Paul's argument. That if we don't see Jesus for who he is, what he's done, how he's accomplished all this, then we're never going to be the generous people we're called to be. It's all from Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. And so we're going to look at this. Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, I, I say this not as a command. So for the second time now, Paul is expressing that he's not forcing them to give. In fact, in verse chapter 9, rather, he's going to, which we'll look at next week, he's going to go so far as to say, like, hey, if, if you don't give with a cheerful heart, you shouldn't give. Like, I'm okay with you not giving at all, if it's not for the right reasons. Paul is not here to force them on any force anything on them. He says, I'm not saying this as a command. I'm not forcing you to give. But I want to prove, he says, by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There's the gospel. Paul brings it back to the gospel. And what he's saying is, is this, that being generous is it's evidence of believing in the finished work of Christ. We can be generous as evidence of the fact that we believe what Jesus has done for us. He, he brings it all back in verse 9, that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? That though he was rich, meaning he was in heaven as God on the throne, ruling and reigning in the world, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why did Jesus enter into our humanity? Why did Jesus leave the throne of, of heaven for the manger of earth 
and the poverty that he endured through his life. Why would he do that? For your sake. For you. He did that. Amen. So, then he says, so that you, by his poverty, by his sufferings, by his poverty, by his life here on earth, you might become rich. Now, he's not speaking here about earthly monetary riches. Let's not get that twisted around. He's not talking about you being rich in the sense that you'll have all this money on earth. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But the wealth that he's talking about here is the wealth of eternal life in Christ forever. He did all of this to bring us to himself. In fact, the Bible says in in Ephesians chapter 2, that we have an inheritance that we are going to have as we trust in Christ, that everything God owns, which is everything, is going to belong to us too collectively as his, as his people, as his bride, as whatever analogy you want to use from the Bible. He's going to bring us with him and we're going to enter into his, his life and wealth. And that's a beautiful thing. So that's where Paul goes. He's saying that being generous is evidence And that's what he says in verse 8, right? Prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. How do you prove that it's genuine? It's by believing the gospel and then living in a way that reflects that. All right, let's look at verse 10 through 12. We're going to circle back to this, verse 9. I want to end on verse 9 because I think that's so important, but let's keep getting through the text. Um, Verse 10 uh, through 12. And in this matter, I give my judgment... And this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your, ready, that your readiness is in desiring it may be matched, but you're completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So here's... Here's the main idea in those few verses. He's saying that being generous actually requires you to give. You can't just talk about it. To be a generous person means you actually give. And so that's what he's saying. He's like, we started this discussion a year ago, and back then you were eager to do this, to be a part of this, to to have a, a role in this. Now he's saying, okay, you talked about it, now finish it, finish it out. Let's, let's get to the finish line here. But again, he's not pressuring them or forcing them to do that because he says here in verse 12, uh, if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. All right, so I mentioned this already a little bit, but it's this idea of, hey, if you have, then, then give. If you don't have, then you don't have anything to give. So, so there you go. He's not trying to pressure them, but he knows that they have. He knows that they're well, uh, well positioned to give as a church. Um, so, okay, let's keep going. Verse 13 through 15. For I, do not want sh- for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much has nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Um, so, 
so here's what Paul's getting at in these verses. He's saying that being generous is one of the means, one of the ways that God actually helps people. Right? He's, he's saying that this is how God does this. God could miraculously just plop down a bunch of money on your kitchen table today if you need it. And, and God's not outside of that. He could do that, certainly. Um, we hear stories about that miraculous provision all the time in, in our world, and God is gracious in those things. But God's primary way of getting people help is through his people helping them actually coming, going out and being of help. And so Paul says that if you, um, if you have money to give, then God's going to use that. And it's going to be a two-way street, right? That's what he's saying. Look at verse 13. He says, I don't, I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened. He's saying, I'm not saying that you Corinthians should be the ones that are taking all of this upon yourselves, But, he says, as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time, like the fact that you're filthy rich right now, let's just be blunt about it, right? You guys have so much money, Corinth. You're you're in that position to do this. So your abundance right now can supply their need and should supply their need. But he's, he's basically turning it around and going, but you know that that may not always be the case. You guys may not always have the money you have, right? There is uncertainty about riches. Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy. He tells Timothy to, to remind the people in his church to not trust in the uncertainty of riches because we, we don't have any promise from Scripture that the, mo- that the money here on earth is going gonna, is gonna to keep up, right? And so Paul's saying, hey, you know, you guys may be in a hard spot, and there, in that case, their abundance might supply your need. So yes, right now, you're in the position to help. Someday, they may be in the position to help you. And that's, that's where he says there's fairness. So he's not talking here about uh, some socialistic idea of, of setting up life. He's, he's simply saying that, that believers, Christians, should help each other, should, should care for one another, so that as there is need over here and that we can meet those needs, great. As there's need over here, someone else can help us meet our needs. Right? You have this, this dynamic going back and forth. But it's, but it's God's way of helping people. He, he then, at verse 15, he quotes um, from the book of Exodus about the manna in the wilderness. He says, as it is written, whoever gathered had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. And basically he's saying that in that, in that episode of the, the wandering in the wilderness as God provided manna, this bread from heaven for the people. He said everybody had what they needed. People who gathered more than what they needed, all that extra stuff that they gathered rotted away. They couldn't eat it. It was only good for the day. It was enough for them for the day. And so if they were extra greedy and were bringing back all this extra uh, you know, food, thinking, oh, I can store this away for a rainy day, God's like, nope. That's not going to be good for that. So, but then those who didn't maybe have enough found themselves being having their needs met by Christ in that. 
I, I found this little quote from the ESV study Bible notes. I thought it was interesting and helpful. And he says, uh, I don't know who wrote the notes, but it says, like God's provision of manna at the first exodus, the provision in the second exodus in Christ, right, as Christ comes to free us from our sin ultimately, not just Egypt, but our sin. That's what Christ came to do, right? Set us free forever. It, that second exodus in Christ has also been equally sufficient between the Jews and the Gentiles so that each may be able to provide for the other, right? So the Jewish believers in Jerusalem were suffering at this point and, and the Gentile churches could come and meet their need. But likewise, if the Gentiles were going to suffer, the, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem might be in a position to help. This is how God works. He works through people helping each other. All right, lastly, last paragraph, verse 16 through 24. Let's just read it. We'll read all of it, um, and then we'll, we'll just talk for a few minutes. Don't want to hone in too much on it, and then we'll circle back to the, to the gospel here. So here's what it says. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he, had, uh, for he not only accepted our appeal, but himself being very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, uh, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. And with them, we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker in, uh, for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. All right, so all of that uh, really is just logistics, right? If we read it, Paul's simply saying to the Corinthians, here's how this is going to work. Uh, Titus and these other couple of guys are going to come down to you. They're going to come over to your place, and they're going to pick up the gift. And they're on their way to Jerusalem, right? So they're coming from Macedonia through, through Corinth, ultimately working their way down to Jerusalem. And when they stop at Corinth, they're going to pick up whatever you've raised, whatever you've put together for this, for this church in Jerusalem, and they're going to bring it. But, but here's, so, so on one hand, it's simply just those logistics. But um, I think there's also something else going on here. Paul is talking about Titus and these other two guys, uh, at least, who he's talking about them in an interesting way. He's talking about how earnest they are, how eager they are to be with the Corinthians, how much they want to come to them and help them and, and get this, this all taken care of. And I think what that's pointing us to is something really important. And that is this, that, that generosity is not just about our money. It's also... Uh, a, uh, uh, it also flows into our time and our gifting, right? Being generous is not just about how much money you can give. It's also about how much you're willing to give yourself. Give, give yourself to others. 
Give your time, give your energy, give the spiritual giftings that you have. How you use your life is a way of being generous. It comes in lots of forms. In fact, Paul talks about Titus, who of his own accord, his own, he made the decision to go back down to Corinth and, and do this. He's giving this time. He's doing this. But then he mentions this other guy. He mentions in verse 18, with him we're sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. That's Okay, interesting. Now, what I find even more interesting is that Paul doesn't actually tell us who this guy is, who's apparently famous for, from all these churches. Every, every church knows this guy. So maybe Corinth knows this guy. So, it doesn't, so he, his name doesn't even need to be said. But, but 2,000 years later, I love this. We have no idea who this guy is. And yet he was famous. We have no idea who he is. And I think that that's, that's wonderful <laughs> because if the Lord doesn't come first, which I sure hope he does, but if there's, if there's still a church here on earth, Jesus hasn't come back in 2,000 years, no one's going to remember the preachers today that are famous. Like John Piper, right? Some of you guys know John Piper's name. No one's going to remember John Piper in 2,000 years. No one's going to remember any of these famous people that, that have gone on before because we remember them because they're sort of kind of in our, in our time frame. But here you have a guy from 2,000 years ago who was famous in all the churches before the internet even happened, so you can't, you can't even blame that. It was just like this guy was famous for preaching and we have no idea who he is. And that's an amazing thing. That's a little side note, but I love it. Because it reminds me of the, of the quote from somebody I can't remember now. Uh, but he, he said, um, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's like, isn't that the point? <laughs> preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's what this guy did. And, and that's just an amazing thing. So then you got another guy who, again, we don't have his name. And, and so, but, but they but they poured their lives into the Corinthians. They poured their lives out for the whole church. They loved to be generous with the gifts that they had. And so it doesn't matter whether you're famous or not famous. It doesn't matter whether your gifts are great or small. It doesn't matter whether you're, you, you have all the money in the world. You can be generous. You can be a generous person by having the desire to be with people. Your time is probably even more precious than your money. Your gifts are more precious than your money. And these brothers with Titus went, went out of their way to go and be a part of that. Well, I think that's an amazing place to kind of conclude there. But we, we have, we really do need to come back to the gospel. Um, because like I said, the whole premise of this, the whole point that Paul's making here is that this is not about money. It's, it's really about Jesus and who he is and what he's done and how he's loved us. And, and I, um, I came across this, this quote. It's kind of a long quote, but it's um, by Thomas Brooks. He's a, he was a Puritan. I'm on a Puritan kick right now. I'm reading Puritans, okay? Um, and so I shared a Puritan quote last week with you guys from a different guy. Uh, this, is, this is another one. And I was reading it. I'm not reading it to prepare for sermons. I'm just reading it for my own my own soul and, and uh, my growth in Christ. And I came across this, this little paragraph 
and was like, wow, that fits really well with what, what Paul's talking about. Um, where Paul talks about how Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor. And so this book by um, Thomas Brooks is, uh, it's called um, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Um, so basically he goes through the ways that Satan tempts us to sin and what we can do about that from the 1600s. And it's still just as useful today as it was then. And in, in one of the remedies that he gives is to remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That we can fight sin as we draw back to mind who Jesus is and what he's done. And, and I think here's the point, right? If you're struggling today with any kind of sin, even, even the sin that would be in this context, which would be greed or stinginess or not wanting to be a, of help to someone, that is sin. That is against the impulse of the gospel. And maybe that's where you're at, where you're just struggling to be generous. Here's what we all need to do. And this, this is broader than generosity. It's, it applies to any kind of sin we're struggling with. But what we need to do is we need to look to Jesus and we need to see his love for us and we need to see the generosity he gave towards us and then ask him for his help to be generous. So this is how uh, Thomas Brooks describes it from 1652. He's just, he just starts to lay out what Jesus did. And here, here's where it starts. He says, That Christ should come from the eternal side of his Father to a region of sorrow and death. That, Christ, that God should be manifested in human flesh. The cre- creator made a creature. That he who is clothed with glory should be wrapped with rags of human flesh. That he who filled heaven and earth with his glory should be cradled in a manger that the almighty God should flee from weak men, the God of Israel, into Egypt. That's a reference to Jesus going into Egypt as a young child. That the God of the law would be subject to the law. That the God of the circumcision circumcised. The God who made the heavens working as a carpenter. That he who binds the devil in chains should be tempted that he whose is the world and the fullness thereof should hunger and thirst, that the God of strength should be weary, the judge of all flesh condemned, the God of life put to death, that he who was with the Father should cry out, if misery, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he who had the keys of hell and death at his side should lie imprisoned in the grave of another having in his lifetime nowhere to lay his head and after his death nowhere to lay his body. That the head before which angels would cast their crowns would be crowned with thorns and his eyes purer than the sun put out by the darkness of death. Those ears which hear nothing but hallelujahs of saints and angels would hear the blasphemies of the multitude. The face which was fairer than the sons of men would be spit upon the mouth and tongue which spoke as never man spoke, accused of blasphemy. That, that's Jesus. That's what he's done for us. That's how he in his richness 
came down into our poverty, that his hands and feet would be nailed to the cross for you and for me. That's the thing that gets us to, to repentance and to joy is to see Jesus for who he is. So let me, let me pray for us. Let me close this with that. And then we'll take some time to sing a few songs in response and give you the opportunity to remind yourselves of these very things that Jesus did for you as he came to earth in dying on the cross as we remember his death and his, his body and his blood shed for us at the table of communion. And let's, so let's pray and then we'll go into that. Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us so well. We confess our need. We confess our sins. We confess that we have nothing to offer you, but you have given everything for us. You have laid everything aside for us. And Lord, that is just, it's humbling and it's convicting and it's, we need to remember it. We need to be moved by it. We need to be changed by you, God. And so we pray that you would do that work in us. Would you help us, Lord, to see you and see you clearly? And we pray that as we respond, that our hearts would be moved in the, in the direction you want us to move. Would you help us to move towards generosity and do, do what it is you've called us to do in helping others? We pray for those things and we ask it in your strength and your power. And we pray trusting you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.